People of the universe, please attend carefully. The podcast which follows is vital to the future of you all. You're listening to the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. In this episode of the Doctor Who podcast, we'll be taking a look at some of the interesting shenanigans that went on at the recent Big Blue Box 2 convention. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. Uh, I'm joined in the camper van by James. Hello, Liz, and hello, everybody. Hello, good to be here again. Uh, second one back after my holiday in the sunshine. Seems like a distant memory now. It's it's grey, it's dull, but but it's the England I know and love. Uh, and <laughs> and the thing we do best in, in the England that I know and love is uh, you know, Doctor Who conventions. Uh, and on a smaller scale, as, as we've spoken about before about the, the English conventions, uh, they, they tend to be on a, on a smaller, more intimate scale. One of them is uh, Big Blue Box, which has been running for two years now, uh, which is why they decided to call the, the second one Big Blue Box 2. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> I'm wondering how many times I can say Big Blue Box in uh, this podcast without fluffing it again. I, I think just before we do proceed with this show, I think you should try and say Big Blue Box 2 three times very quickly. Go. Big Blue Box 2, Big Blue Box 2, Big Blue Box 2. Oh, well, I, I'm incredibly impressed, but it does mean there's absolutely no excuse now as you introduce this rather wonderful panel that we've got for the listeners. So without further ado, we go over to one of the big blue box panels with Simon Gurrier, Andrew Smith and Nigel Fares. Mm, and I was lucky enough to present it, so you've got another half an hour of me as well. <laughs> Summoned, enter Nigel Fares, Simon Gillier, and Andrew Smith with James Rockcliffe. Hello, everybody. I can't actually Hello. tell whether there's anybody there because we've just got two large lights. So, can you make some noise? Hello. There are some people there. Andrew, let's, let's talk to you first of all. When um, the, the, the writing process, certainly all the way back in the, uh, back in the 80s for television, mm. uh, can, can you tell us how you, how you approached it? How did you get your script for Full Circle into production? Well, that, that was my, my first drama script. I'd had a couple of sketches on, on shows before then, but that was just a case of plugging away at the production office, while at the same time sending stuff into other dramas that were in production at the time. And... Uh, until Chris Bidmead and John Nathan Turner said he would like to uh, commission you to write the scripts for the first episode, scene breakdown for the rest, and uh, we'll see what we think. So that was quite atypical for getting it done. Especially, I didn't have an agent at that time, I got an agent on the back of it. It's another kind of catch-22 situation for people writing for television, I think even more so today. But it was as straightforward and as, as I say, atypical as that, really. 
Okay, so um, you, were, you were writing and you were pitching ideas, uh, whereas now you're, uh, you're writing for the same characters, certainly in your companion chronicle, mm. Invasion of Space. What, what's it like mm. taking a character that you've already written for and um, created, can we say, with Adric, and, and then develop them, push the character forwards into, um, into what we hear in the audios. So with that, and with, with any of the other characters, I don't think you think about it so much in isolation as to how, how can I develop that character specifically. You just look at the, the story that you've got and uh, the, the part that they'll play in that and hopefully give them some meaningful, proactive, a meaningful, proactive role in that and look for opportunities to maybe produce, uh, provide some extra backstory. For in, in Invasion of Eastspace, as uh, some mention of Adric's family having been killed in the forest fire, which is something that I'd included in the localization mm. that I wanted to put in the audio. You get a bit too bogged down, perhaps, just if you think too much in isolation of developing a character, thinking more about the story that's got in front of you. I don't know what you guys think about that. Mm. Well, you, you've both had a similar experiences very mm. much with, mm. with Leela and, uh, and also with, with Simon, with a number of the early companions yeah, I've read with you. All of them. Um, <laughs> I just haven't. Especially with companions, if, if you're doing Doctor Who, I tend to look for what can I say that's new? What can I find that, that mm. hasn't been explored before? And my extremely tortuous process for, for doing this is to watch the DVDs of the stories that the companions were in and make notes and put off writing for as long as possible. <laughs> then just make some stuff up. I, I, I don't know. I, I, um, I, I watched the, when I was doing the, the Sarah Kingdom ones, I watched the episodes of Dalek Master Plan and then kind of felt I didn't really have a handle on it. So you watched Upstairs Downstairs? Yes. <laughs> uh, oh, that'd be brilliant. Yeah. Uh, 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 do I, a crossover. Yeah, I'd mm. love to do a crossover. Uh, Gene Marsh did actually pitch to me an idea, which was Joanna, sister of Richard the Lionheart, oh. and Sarah Kingdom, and Morgaine having tea together. <laughs> which made me cry with laughter as she was telling it and um, I, I, but I think she might have been serious but anyway um, uh, so I listened <clears throat> to the soundtrack of Dalek Master Plan and got con context and had notes and stuff and then when I actually came down to write it I all based it on a clip from one of the existing episodes which is where she tells Stephen about her brother mm. um, just because I thought that gives you a heart that, gi that gives you a sense of the, p the character that's behind the facade and that gave me an in basically and um, so I, I basically kind of just went from there. What, what Andrew said about the story, the st it's mm. the story that's your driving thing and, and what can you show the companion, what can you show the character that hasn't been done before, that hasn't been said before, yeah. that, that's the kind of thing I worry about. Well I, I think perhaps Nigel, maybe you've, you've taken this to the nth degree. I um, killed her off, yes. <laughs> with, with Leela, yes, yeah, spoilers She was by dead the way. to begin with in mine. <laughs> Was she? Yeah, Sarah's dead to begin with in mind. That, oh, I, yes, I, yes, that's, that's actually, right. That was actually how it began in the original draft. Sarah Kingdom dead. was dead to begin dead. with. That's mm. like Christmas Carol. They, oh, right. They, they, they oh, yeah. out. oh, that's a nice line. Yeah, I was very pleased with it. Well, um. you, you say you, you killed Leela off. Yeah. She, she's in the process of resurrecting, isn't she? Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> is she coming back as a house? No. <laughs> <laughs> is she coming back as a portal? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, 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 was, uh, I, I begged whoever was in charge of it, because it was quite good, is it? Early on in the companion yeah, long time ago. chronicles, yeah. I can't remember who it was. I begged them to to write a Leela one because I just about getting to know Lou at that point, and I th and and I said, well, as long as I can make it her last one, that, that she she dies in it, and because it was early days, and I don't think they were going to make more than eight or something, 
Um, that was fine. But then, of course, I got commissioned to write the second one. <laughs> so I can't remember how I got out of it. Anyway, um, then a third one and then a fourth one. So she's, she's, yeah, she's died and come back as someone else. So in a way, you're finishing off really what Chris Boucher and Philip Hinchcliffe started in the creation of the character. You, you've really taken Leela to places yes. that the TV series wasn't able. I yes. mean, how, how does that feel as a writer and also as a, someone who likes Doctor Who? Uh, yeah, well, yes, it's, it's, it's quite exciting because it's different. Yeah. I mean, it's not universally popular. I, I've, I've been on the forums. Um, <laughs> and... Um, but, you know, so what, uh, really? You, you, if you carry on just listening to very angry people on forums saying this isn't Doctor Who, then you're never going to be able to write <coughs> Doctor Who or anything. Mm. Um, and, and always the, the, the best Doctor Who was the Doctor Who that was slightly different and in, innovative. And, you know, I remember when Deadly Assassin came out yes. and everyone said, this isn't Doctor Who, this isn't Gallifrey. It's, it's pants, and now, of course, it's held up as this wonderful thing. So one day, my Leela Chronicle things <laughs> will... <laughs> I, I certainly understand. It's got to be a difficult decision as a writer. You want some feedback on your work, and I think we were talking a little bit earlier mm. uh, about obtaining feedback on, mm. your, uh, on your writing. But also, you want to make certain it's objective, because, mm. of course, I mean, I mean ha, not, how do you deal objective. with that? No. It's never it's objective. objective, even the people you're working with. Mm. You know, when you, you have a producer and a script editor and the actors and the director, Toby in the studio, they all have their opinions of the scripts. You can tell very quickly if they're mm. not happy. You kind of have to go with what you're, what's in your gut, really. And, mm. and, and act, but actually, that's what's get, in my case, that's what gets the script written. It's a story mm. that I think is exciting and excites me enough that I want to, you know, I, yeah. I'd love to be in a position where I'm, I'm just knocking them out for the money. But the money... <laughs> Uh, you, you have to, it has to be, I, I, don't, I don't know, I think you can tell when they're not made with love as well. Mm. I think mm. you can tell in anything when, when there, isn't, there isn't that drive behind them. No, I, I, think, right. I think the first thing, you write for yourself, first of all. Again, mm. it's a story that, that grabs, grabs you, the situations and characters that you're interested in. That's, that's where you start. If, you just, if, if something's imposing and, you, and your heart's not in it, then yeah. uh, it's very and, difficult. Uh, and sometimes people criticising you, they're right. You know, that's... That's oh, it. no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> when they're criticising me, they're usually right. But, uh, 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 there's a great um, Donald Sturrock's book on um, biography of Roald Dahl, storyteller, which is really, really good and really fascinating. Mm. Has something that, that I just find amazing, which is he describes the first draft of Matilda, which is Roald Dahl's final novel, mm -hmm. um, which I adore and very successful, where the original version of Matilda, which is about a little girl who's, who's neglected by her parents and stuff, and she, she's so neglected and she's so smart that she's... A, develops the ability to move things with her mind. And in the original draft, she uses this ability to cheat at the horse races and win the validation of her parents. Her parents are suddenly, because they're able to cheat the horse, horses and whatever and make them lots of money, they suddenly realize that she's useful. Perfect. And they like her. There's a, just, he just quotes a letter from Dahl's daughter or stepdaughter going, I really like the beginning of the book. And the last bit is just the most abhorrent, horrible thing of, of her succumbing mm -hmm. to all, you know, you set up that they're wrong about their values and then she goes along with it and that's horrible. So he came up with a different, he rewrote the second half of the book from scratch, came up with something completely different, which is amazing and very funny. And I, I was just reading that going, I've done stuff where David Richardson has gone, what on earth have you sent me? 
and I've had to go back and retool it and whatever. Mm. So that was really reassuring because I mm. think that, that you take the risk and, and do what you want right, but, but be receptive to... Mm. Oh, I'm aware that Tom's staring at me going, <laughs> <laughs> what, rewrites? What, do rewrites? <laughs> Simon, what, really? What, you're going to say? He, he didn't like some stuff I wrote once. Oh, really? No. But I, I, it's interesting when you're talking about what essentially is the gestation and uh, development process of a story, when you're talking to people who have commissioned it and so on. At what point do you, and this goes to all three of you, at what point do you mentally put the project to bed? Is it when you've delivered? Or is it when you've sought out the feedback that you may have been referring it's to? when you put the check in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Big Finish still pays in checks. It's like, <laughs> oh, by yeah. post. Yeah, yes. and, and as he's writing them out, uh, Jason is driving a hansom cab and smoking a pipe. Yeah. <laughs> and, and weeping. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know, putting it to bed. Oh, hmm. Putting it to bed, I suppose, at the recording. Well, I, I'll tell you what, before you answer, mm. Andrew, let me, let me do something really bad and jump in again. Um, let me use another example that is pertinent to you. The creation of, let's say, a, a controversial companion... I mean, how do you feel about... Did I, I didn't, I didn't create Keen Eye. That was... <laughs> <a big one>. <laughs> <laughs> Got a lovely little nose, though, hasn't Who, it? Matthew sorry, Adric? Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little pointy nose. <laughs> I was just about to talk about a little blaster that came out of it. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just want to tweak it. But how, how invested are you now when you, know, when you see fan responses uh, to, to, to the character that you brought to screen, you gave words first to? I've got a particular association uh, with Adric because mine was his first story and I provide a lot, a lot of his backstory hmm. uh, to go with the brief that I was given by the production office. I mean, I wasn't aware of this body of uh, vitriol <laughs> <laughs> that was out there until I saw the Airshot DVD, which came out about 10 years ago. And uh, there's a little uh, animated extra on it of uh, the spaceship that Adric is on crashing on Earth. Uh, Adric, little clay doll of Adric, rolls out, rolls into a cave and is eaten by a dinosaur. And then the, the credits come up and it says, Adric played by a lump of clay. Uh, hello. And then listen to the commentary and, then, and there it was, this, uh, all the, the anti-Adric sentiment. I didn't take it personally. I, I still don't. I just, you know, I think there's a lot to like in that character. Mm. Uh, it was, I mean, I said, I think across the, the episodes that Adric featured in, the character was very inconsistent which doesn't help and didn't help Matthew. I don't feel invested to the, to the point that I take any, anything critical said about Adric as, hmm. as, as personal. It, it's very easy to find negative feedback, but there are people who love Adric. There are people yeah, out there who Adric, are incredibly Adric grateful mm. uh, for his creation. And uh, certainly I was about the right age at the time, and I, <laughs> this guy with... In pajamas, I wanted pajamas like that. And, uh, it was, it, it was. Have you got pajamas? All oh, right, like I've that. got pajamas like that. Yes, that's enough. Let's move are you, on. Are you wearing them under your clothes? Now? You are, aren't you? That will remain a mystery. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm interested in the, the the idea that you'll possess or, or you would be possessive of characters you create, mm. because you know when you get the job that Doctor Who is, you know, it's had a hundred, mm. however many writers mm. on it, it's had so many, that you're, you're kind of playing in somebody else's park anyway. Yeah. Mm. Where it'd be different, I did pitch an idea, or I think I just said I'd like to do a companion chronicle for Louise. And... Um, you see, said Nigel's doing it already. And, no, and, and, no I, I, I didn't even pitch an idea, I just said, I quite like, I, I like Louise. And we got on, and I'd like to write for her more and stuff. And um, David Richardson did go... Do you want to tell Nigel that? And I was like, <laughs> actually, yeah, I can see that, that there'd be a, a... Just because what he's done is so... Is yeah. so yeah. Of it, so, yeah, we, I would not 
write part of that ongoing story. Yeah, I would yeah. write my, and I'd go, what, what would be the point? Because actually that's much more interesting and she's doing the stories with Tom and she's doing, what would I actually add to that and stuff? And then I spoke to somebody who is writing for Jean Marsh, uh, Sarah, and I actually felt my heart skipping. <laughs> yeah. She's mine. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's kind of weird. You, you know, you, you, you are possessive, you're not possessive, you're, but no more than you are as a fan if somebody says that a story you like isn't very good or my favourite doctor is whatever, and you mm. go, but that's just wrong. You know, it's, it's that same kind of... Oh, yeah, yeah. I completely yeah. agree. Mm. I would have had you killed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then I would have come back as a house with powers. And uh, it would be fine. How, how much do you find that, again, to, to all three of you, do you find your own experiences creeping into your storylines? Oh, God, all the time. You can't be a writer if you're not going to write from life. And, and also, you're not always... There are times when you put things in a, a conscious thing. Yes. So Wizards, the starting point for Wizard as a story was something that my dad did. And I just thought, oh, that's... And I told Tom about it and, and just went, you know, my dad, who was a surgeon, was work, volunteering in a museum and was working the cash till and was, got, was really keen to do it very, very well and show me he'd done it well. And you're going, you used to cut bodies up and take mm. them apart. This is so beneath you and yet you're really proud of doing it. And I just thought that was funny and mm. kind of went with mm. that. And then there's stuff where I got asked when Graceless came out what was going on in my life because it was quite dark and people weren't surprised by it. And I, I, was going, I just remember it being a laugh because it was a bunch of my friends who were doing it and it was good fun. And then I was listening to it going, yeah, I was actually going through some stuff yeah. in my life. And wasn't even aware of it at the time, mm. wasn't even kind of consciously. And I don't think there's anything in it that's consciously about stuff that was going on in my life. But can't help but bleed through. I'm yeah. sure, I'm sure. Mm. And, and the part of the reason why I'm asking is because, I mean, the observant amongst you might have noticed Nigel's injured his arm. Um, I was run over. It was run over callously. Um, On the pavement. And, and yet... You really, really wanted to get those Leela stories for <laughs> Have you seen Cleaning Up? Yes, I'd be a little bit concerned about and what goes there on in Simon's mind. I was on my penny farthing with my pipe, <laughs> made up to look like Jason Hay Gallery, and he saw straight through it. But the, the reason why I mention Nigel's arm explicitly is because he talks about it on his video mm. log, uh, which is on his webpage. Have any of you seen that? <laughs> yes, well, do go and look at my blog. And the reason why is because Nigel talks about that in a fairly positive way. If you're going to break your arm, you want to do it in the way Nigel seems to Ah, but you to haven't do. seen the episode before where I'm sort of looking where you're like very a morose. Tramp. Yes, yes I'm very but morose, the, yes. I wouldn't say a tramp. All right. <laughs> but you, it was certainly a, a journey. And I'm wondering whether or not, because we're seeing a part of someone's life here mm. that, uh, you know, is intrinsically related to telling stories to entertain others, mm. are we going to see any of this very traumatic experience in a uh, play. that you've been through? At some point, would it manifest itself in your work, do you think? Oh, I expect so. Yes. I just got to work yes. out how. Uh, yes, you, yes, you yeah. just have to work out. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Leela breaks yeah. her arm. <laughs> No, I think it would probably be more likely to be a, a stage play, I would have thought. Well, yes, uh, 25 stage plays to your name, at least. Yes. Uh, and a couple of musicals six, six, as yes, well. Yes, uh, six musicals. A couple My sixth well. one is coming on in May in the Brighton Festival. And do go and see it because it's, it's a sci-fi theme. Um, I wrote um, a play called My Mother Was an Alien, Is That Why I'm Gay? Which, yeah, oh, good. <laughs> Which um, Big Finish yes. have turned into a CD starring Lou as this... Oh. Um, a sci-fi diva who was once, um, well, was once a sci-fi diva and now is an embittered old bitch. 
Um, and uh, that's, that's all set in the fictional universe of Space Station 17. Well, this musical called Cruising is a sequel to My Mother Was an Alien, Is That Why I'm Gay? It's set on a cruise ship in which there's a sci-fi convention uh, in which one of the other controllers, who's uh, the, the, the character that Lou's character played in this sci-fi thing, she's stuck there with her husband, 200 fans, and her ex-girlfriend. <laughs> so, and it's a musical. <laughs> on ice. No, no, no. On ice. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a, so it's quite good fun. In how, May. How do you go about writing uh, a stage play uh, with such an interesting concept there uh, mm. compared to The Companion Chronicle? Uh, well, I think Simon sort of hinted, you know, when you're doing Doctor Who or Blake 7 or Sapphire and Steel, or whatever it is, um, you are, you're kind of stuck in a universe that's already there. Um, you can stretch it, obviously, and you can tell interesting stories around it. You can put your own stuff into it. But at the end of the day, there are rules, you know, even if it is that there has to be a theme tune at the end of the, <laughs> and at the beginning, but you have to use the main characters. Whereas stage play or original drama, whatever it is, you make the rules, you create the universe, um, which in some ways is scary, but some ways it's the most exciting thing ever. Feels quite liberating oh, to write and completely, does it. Yes. And it's also very mm. rewarding when it works. Yes. If you write a Doctor Who, no matter how well the Doctor Who goes and, and how brilliant the cast are and stuff, you always kind of feel it's somebody else's. Mm. Whereas if mm. it's something of your own and it works, you can put then, your stamp on it. Yeah, then it's yeah. yours, um, mm. I think. And you know, and you just pretend that nobody else had anything to do with it. So, so. it goes back to that, <laughs> to, to that proprietorial feel that you have over a product it that you've can created. Be the, yes, it can be the most mm. terrifying thing in the world to go to a premiere of something that you've had nothing to do with except writing it. Mm. I was commissioned once, uh, uh, about 20 years ago, to write a play because a theatre company had three World War, world war I costumes. Um, so I wrote a play, rather like, um, and it was set in the afterlife, and it had a nurse who died in the trenches, a, a, a soldier who died on day one of the war, First World War, a soldier who died on the last day of the war, you know, shot for cowardice. And so, actually, it's a really good play. <laughs> um, but I, I knew that the whole play ended with this four-page monologue about the horror of trenches and everything. Really moving speech, I thought. So I went to the premiere, really excited about this thing, and the costumes were superb. And the first actor came on, the soldier, he was, he was great, who died on the first day, jingoistic, in a wheelchair, absolutely fantastic actor. Then the guy who was going to come on as this, uh, with the four-page monologue came on, he was dreadful. <laughs> His father had loaned them the costumes, so that's how he got the, the part. And honestly, I've never felt so dreadful in a theatre before in my life, knowing that this four-page monologue was coming on, and it lasted, the monologue lasted about an hour, it was dreadful. Uh-huh. But the, 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 the karma came, because I, I saw that actor, and indeed that costume again, once more, in a play called in a film, sorry, called Regenerations, I think it was, set in the world, First World War. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, he's in the first scene. I couldn't believe it. In the costume, he comes on, he's blown up instantly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to go with that, honestly. 
<laughs> but uh, I, I will ask, uh, we'll ask you some more questions, I think, um, probably put to us by the audience in a second. But one thing I did want to ask Andrew and Simon before we do that is Destiny of the Doctor. Now, you've both written stories, one follows yep. the other. Yep. Simon with the second Doctor, Andrew with the third. Now, we know these stories are going to be linked in some way. Did you have any discussion about how to lead from one to the other? No, no. we didn't, because there isn't a sense of leading. There is something in common with all the stories. If mm. any of you have heard them, you'll notice there is something, some particular thing happens in each episode that will eventually lead to something in November. But no, we, no, we didn't have I didn't know. I didn't know any of the other writers when oh, I wrote mine. Okay. Mm. Um, uh, I didn't know who... <clears throat> I knew one of the writers because he told me, because um, <laughs> he, he was very excited. And uh, yeah, I, I basically got a brief from John Aysworth and who was producing and directed mine. And um, that was it, really. Mm. Um, okay. I'm sorry, I thought it'd be more structured. Uh, no, I think it's one thing, it's, uh, again, <laughs> but, but, big... but that was because that was because John was in charge of that. No, I didn't need course. to worry. He was, quite, he was yeah. very keen that although the stories were, would mm. link together, that they'd be standalone and isolated. Mm. So mm. I don't know whether he did this on purpose, but the idea was that I would write a standalone story that yep. if you didn't buy any of the others then then it would work on its own so and he had a very particular view about it should have the feel of the era so that if ideally so that if somebody had never seen Patrick Troughton's Doctor bought it they would get it and they'd get the feel of it and yeah. then they might go off and explore more Troughton CDs or DVDs <coughs> or whatever so um, that was the sort of bit I was worried about um, sure. how and basically I, I watched the DVDs of all the episodes with Zoe in and, um, oh, is it Wendy Papery reading it? No, it's Fraser. Oh, it's Fraser. Okay. Uh, it was amazing. And I'd worked with Fraser before, and I knew that he can do that thing of being Jamie and the Doctor <laughs> yeah. and the Rate, yeah. and you're never, in any, you're never in any doubt who he is when he's doing that. So uh, uh, he just flips between it, and I just knew that would be very effective and make it's it sound It's all down better. to the cough, did he say? Yeah, and, and, his, hes cough. and his hesitation, which yeah. is, which is Troughton spacing out so that he's got time to remember where he's yeah. going, and, and mm. not because he very doesn't remember clever. where he's going, but so that if he does get stuck, because he has a lot of stuff to remember, he's always left himself a bit of room. Mm. And it, yeah, good technical bit of yeah, uh, yeah. acting. Ah, yeah. And I knew it was going to be Fraser, so I watched it all again. I watched all those episodes again, and... I can't even remember why, but I was really taken by the Seeds of Death, which is just great. And I mean, they're all great, but the Seeds of Death really got me, and I just went, I want to get the same feel, I want to get the same kind of heart of it. And that, that was the bit I worried about. And then um, John told me that, John sent me a list of who the other writers were. And uh, It's one of the nice things about writing for Big Finish, you get to watch Doctor Who for, for your job, for research, <laughs> it's great. I'm working now, I'm going to watch uh, Nightmare of Eden. I, I sometimes tell my wife that's what I am doing. Yeah, yeah, oh. <laughs> This is, this is for a job. Brilliant. Really? Brilliant. Okay. We've got about yeah. 10 minutes left or so. So um, I, I can't see hands, but I'm reliably informed Some, someone yes. with a microphone one, one will be able to. There. It's, okay. Hello. 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 Yeah. Uh, Simon. Um, oh, hello. Yes, hello, Simon. What memories do you have of adapting Dick Sharple's Prison in Space uh, for audio? Uh, uh, Prison in Space was great because the script was already there. Uh, it was a full four-part script. <clears throat> I was actually given the copy that they had of it, which was the most amazing, fragile document, um, on full-scap paper, which was this very, very thin, uh, longer-than-A4 paper. Mm. In, and it was a, a carbon copy, so it's very, very faint type. So when I tried to scan it, even on the House of Lords scanner that's very good at um, scanning Piers' notes where I work, um, it didn't recognise anything of it. 
So I had to the first thing I had to do was type out the script, Gosh. just just because so, I was only allowed to have it for a couple of days. Um, Couldn't you have photocopied it? No, because it was too faint, and it wouldn't. And it was too long for photocopy. The pages were too long for photocopy. So I did that, and then basically my job was to take that script and make it work on audio for the number of actors we had. So effectively what I did was take the stage directions, pretty much all of the dialogues there. I swapped some of the dialogue around because it had to go through BBC compliance and there was a bit in the original script where Patrick Trout... It's, a, it's about a world where the... the it's basically the, the two Ronnie sketch, The Worm That Turns, but done with Doctor Who. Mm. And there's a bit in it where the Doctor explains that the reason the women have taken over is that humans made a mistake by giving women the vote. <laughs> now, now, amazingly, the same argument... Thank made, God Lou's not on this panel. The, sa the, same, the same kind of speech is made at the end of Goldfinger, by J the novel by James Bond and stuff. So it was kind of a, a, an idea that had been around and stuff. And, it's, it, and I think that what Sharples was doing was commenting on something that was more late 60s, which was the the Enoch Powell Rivers of Blood thing, mm. where he basically said, if you let black people have a vote, they will take over and they will hold the whips and whatever, which is a really mm. nasty speech. Mm. And I think he was satirising that. What I did was I gave that speech to Jamie, and the Doctor and Zoe go, oh, Jamie, you, you know, you're from the 17th century, you know. And, and so I moved some stuff around a bit like that, which Fraser thought was hilarious. I kept in him spanking Zoe, just because... <laughs> just, just made me laugh. Um, and, um, Don't want to get it, no. And then, and then there were all sorts of things where there was stage directions which, was, which I had to spell out quite a lot. So there's a chase at the end that I had, to I had to work out in my head how you'd have done it on television. And there's a bit at the beginning where the doctor hangs off the, a building and it doesn't really explain in the script what happens. So I was thinking, what would, it, what would Troughton do if he could add lib it? And I was going, so there's a statue of a woman like on the carved building, and he's hanging off her shoulders, and then he's slowly slipping down. And then he has to put one hand over his eyes, and stuff, which, which, I just, which was one of the most fun things I've ever written. Um, did it get through? It got through. Not only did it get through, but, but A, the recording was very strange because um, Fraser was, doing, was being Jamie and the narrator and the doctor, and Wendy Pabry was actually quite bothered by it because she'd never heard it before. And because you're in booze and you're not looking at the person next to you, she actually just kind of went, can I have a moment to get used to it? <laughs> yeah. Just because she's going, it's like he's here. And, oh. um, and then they did that. And so that was a bit, whatever. We had a stop and stuff. And then we went back in and went into that scene. And they both started laughing and said, you know, the best possible thing they could have said because they're very trained actors. Which was, yeah, we can imagine him doing it. Oh, and and yeah. exactly how. So, yeah, I, I had a great time doing that one. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay, let's... Yes, let's chap here with a tie. Do you want to wait, do you want to wait for the mic? Uh, my question is for Nigel. Um, I'm the one who went yay when you mentioned um, my mother is nail and is that why I'm gay? Oh, good. And I was just wondering, do you find there's much crossover between gay culture and geek culture? <laughs> Well, I've got a thing about gay geeks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, when I met David Tennant. Oh. Um, <laughs> he's not gay. <laughs> I am. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> What's the crossover? Um, gosh. I don't quite know how to answer that. I'm going to need half an hour to write a play about we'll that. <laughs> I, th I, th I think it's almost specifically to do with Doctor Who in a way. 
Mm. Um, because that's all about an outsider, isn't it? Well, it's all about so many things. But um, a, a lot of it is about the fact that he's, he's an alien, he's, well, he used to be asexual. Apart um, from his granddaughter. Apart from his, yes, yes, yes absolutely. Um, so apart from the very beginning, it yeah. was never about... Yeah, mm. yeah, that's interesting, and got, isn't it? And it's got, gone back to he it. He got engaged I love to Kamei Kerr. Yeah. Oh, that no, was just a misunderstanding, and, uh, sure. No, no, no. Uh, anyway, oh God, I've a, a huge car. Yeah. I didn't. Anyway, that's beside the point. You know, it's it's sort of like, um, I, hopefully it's different now. But certainly for me, growing up in the sixties and seventies, gay was something I couldn't talk about. Something that um, was um, universally wrong, wrong, and so you were basically living a lie for the first eighteen years of your life, um, at least. Uh, but there in Doctor Who was a world in which it was okay to be anything, really. Uh, and it was, a, it, it, it was a world that uh, was, I understood and a world that I could explore and feel as I could escape into. So personally, I think there's a link there between, you know, being... Okay, it's, 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 it's less hostile, the world now, to being different, to being gay, but there's still that hostility there. And so, yeah. Okay, great question. <laughs> Can we? Uh, we've got time for Crap one answer. more, but it has to be very so, quick. A lady so, not too deep. Yes, this lady here. Okay. Have I, either of you wrote for a character that you've actually find parts of yourself, your own personality, and things you may do reflected in it? Well, all of them. Mm. Oh, really? All of them. Um, I think what you have to remember, I, I you know, you, it's not just that the hero is you, but the villain is you. Mm. The policeman that gets killed by a monster with a tentacle that's you as well mm. all of them Definitely. all things and um and so you get to explore bits of you i mean uh, Stephen moffat said a brilliant thing about sherlock because he said he reread the 61 stories or the 57 stories and four novels of sherlock holmes and he said what he really liked was the fact that watson and conan doyle are both uh, watson and sherlock are both conan doyle mm. and they're different sides of him mm. and once you get that there's his kind of left brain intuitive mm. sense and his right brain practical sense. And, um, and then you're going, and Moriarty is part of that as well and, mm. and whatever. So I, th I, I think, yeah, they're all you. Yeah, mm. definitely. Yeah, some of it's explicit and some not, but you always yeah. have to empathise with the characters. Yes. And the Vengeance of Stolen, as far as the Armidians, I'd want to wipe out everyone on Earth as well because uh, they got treated very badly. <laughs> Benton, what a horrible mistake he made. But, uh, <laughs> And some things are more explicit. I mean, in, in the Companion Chronicle version of eSpace, Marnie Tellis is a law enforcement investigator who took her oath and, uh, two months after her 22nd birthday. Well, that's when I swore in as a police officer. So an explicit reference there. But you're right, you have to empathise mm. with all your characters, really. And, and, so, and sometimes you're surprised by it. My, my wife's favourite thing that I've written is a, is a book called The Pirate Loop, a, a Doctor Who book. It was just silly. It's, it's just a, I, I'd written a book that had taken me ages and was very intent, research intense. So when I got that as the next job, I was just doing it for my own entertainment and stuff. And I thought my mum would like it. And there's a bit in it where, where Martha stops some baddies by introducing them to canapes which they've never had before. And they're going, this is amazing, it's cheese and pineapple and sticks. That's just <laughs> the most amazing thing I've ever tasted. And Martha says, well, if you stop being pirates, you could have these all the time, eh? Um, and, uh, which is just, it's just funny, but it was also came from me thinking, what's in the room that she can use when they come into the room? What can she do to be clever and get out of this situation? 
And my wife read that and said, that's the most you of everything, of mm. anything you've ever written. Because it's basically, eating solves the day. <laughs> Brilliant. And, and on that note, we're going to have to wrap up. Ladies and gentlemen, Simon Goyen, Nigel Fares, and Andrew Smith. Thank you very much. So there's a nice slice of the action from Big Blue Box 2. That's the uh, was fourth time I've said it correctly. Uh, and wonderful to hear, always wonderful to hear, um, people who were involved in, in making new content for, for the, the Hooniverse, um, talking about the process and how, how it's done, how these things come to fruition. I particularly like Simon Gurrier and his work for Big Finish. So I think some, mm. of the, uh, some of the companion chronicles he's done have been some of the best, I think. No, I agree. I think whenever he writes for the first or second Doctor, he manages to capture the era so brilliantly in just the atmosphere that he creates, as well as the dialogue he gives his his characters. But that panel was was really really good one to to present. It was a full auditorium uh, that was watching as well. And what they do at Big Blue Box is is it you, <laughs> you sit basically in front of a cinema screen, and the cinema screen is pretty much the same size of a fairly standard screen at your local Odeon mm. um, and it has your name on it you go on stage, you come through a TARDIS to get on the stage with a whole load of smoke mm. so you don't really see very much because you're going from a very dark place to a uh, a stage that's very heavily lit or very brightly lit with a whole load of smoke and then you suddenly see everybody in front of you and then you, you realise they're waiting for you to say something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was quite a lot of fun, I have to say. Um, the, the, the process of writing fascinates me and uh, hearing how three people who have managed to... Well, there's, there's two professional writers there, you know, they, they, they do it for a living and the only reason Andrew Smith doesn't is because he's incredibly successful in another profession. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's just fascinating to hear how people come up with the stories, how they create them, how they bring something new uh, to what could... Well, Doctor Who is, is 50 years old now, you know, it's quite difficult to come up with something brand new. And then they talk about it in a way that's fascinating. It, it's just just great stuff. Well, really the whole process is, is fascinating because I, I love having stories told to me. I've, I've had stories told to me from well, when I was a small child. My father used to sit by the bed and he would make stories up, uh, wonderful stories, and they could go anywhere. And I, I would ask him to include specific ingredients and yeah. weave, weave them together into, into a story. So I've always loved stories. And, and I've never... Never really had the ability to uh, to to weave any of my own. Uh, I had a bit more imagination when I was younger, and I could um, I, I could do a reasonable short story. Uh, and as I've got older, I've sort of lost this ability to be able to structure a story. So hearing people that that write the stories that I'm so impressed with and that that, that do that, because Big Finish in particular, and and mm. Do- mm. Doctor Who as a whole does that thing that, that my father did to me when I was a child. That t- takes me away to a to a fantastical place and takes me on a journey, and these stories it, it's such a difficult process to to sit down and, and, and write something like this and and to um, to make something cohesive uh, and and interesting um, and it is wonderful to hear the process by which uh, these these things come about and and to hear that it's it's hard graft you know oh yeah 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 big time I think people think and it, it's a lot of the time the writers encourage it I think the view that coming up with these stories is relatively easy but it's it, it's so not when you sit down and you talk to one of these writers and you hear the hurdles and the, the writer's block and the things I have to try and overcome to make certain plot points tied together even just coming up with reasons as to why 
two characters happen to be in the same room you know that mm. that is really complex sometimes particularly when you're writing stuff like the destiny of the doctors or the companion chronicles because you've got someone narrating usually he, he narrates in the past tense so there has mm. to be reasons as to why he knows about events that that character <laughs> wasn't actually present for and um, that's that's amazing the process is amazing there are there are all these complications that uh, you know if if the job's done correctly uh, then you you don't even give them a second thought you don't think oh it must have been difficult to, to do that because uh, you just you just take it as read. You just you just listen to the story uh, for what it is, and it takes you on the little journey. Um, it's only when uh, you're, if 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 you're spotting these things as you're listening to a story, and you're seeing the joins, and you're that. I mean, that's when obviously something's gone awry in, in the process. But I, I think on the on the whole, um, you know, the, the writers on on this panel, the stories that that they write are the former rather than the latter. They're the stories where it, it's a seamless journey and it just takes you on a fantastical ride. No, and, and it is an absolute pleasure to sit there on stage and speak to three writers who I admire immensely and I've enjoyed a lot of their stories. And that that's in itself is an honour and a privilege and something that I hope to repeat again. Uh, one day. Uh, we need to say thank you very much indeed to Stephen Elsden once again. He's the Commander-in-Chief of the Big Blue Box Conventions. See, I said it correctly there too. Very well done. Thank you very much. It was a fantastic day all round, all run in aid of a charity uh, called Compaid, uh, which helps disabled people in South England and, and Kent in particular. You can check out their website at compaid.org. UK. Very worthy cause. And that brings us to the end of another Doctor Who podcast, I think, Leeson. It's been oh I, I don't know how to describe it. It's it's been it's been a podcast. Uh, it but has. <laughs> and it's, it's been a it's been an interesting podcast because because we don't get to, to say a lot on on these uh, uh, these uh, podcasts where we have special bits in the middle. Um, and so they, they always feel a bit brief. Uh, but uh, join us next time, dear listeners, when uh, we'll uh, we'll be here with some more more chat. Mm, we will. We may possibly be interviewing a certain tin dog. <sighs> Who could that be? <laughs> and on that note, we'll say bye for now. Bye bye bye. Cheerio. That was the Doctor Who podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Facebook and via the Doctor Who podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I like what you say. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> that'll do, that'll do. And cut. <laughs> well, give it all the other rubbish. Yes, great. Okay, one of these days we'll just have to put it out without any editing whatsoever. That will really scare people. Oh, yes. Well, um, you wouldn't let me get last time would you what did, I re- what did I replace it with I've forgotten I don't know but it was re- I think um, two hearts fluttering if memory serves oh did I I, I, yes. I, I yeah I think you might be right <laughs> <laughs>